Amen. Open your Bibles up to Psalm 139. You know we're only going to be in this series for a couple more weeks. When October rolls around, we are entering into the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is going to be one of a kind. There is no other book like it in the Bible. I'm really excited for that study, which is going to start in October. But uh, while we're in Psalms, I'm super excited that we are going to continue this series. And so in Psalm 139, this is one of the most recognizable psalms because it deals with the concept of God's omniscience and omnipresence. So go ahead and turn there. And what you will see is that it says it's a psalm of David. So uh, most of the psalms are written that are identified are written by David. And David is a man who lived his early years on the run. He lived in a cave. He lived in a forest. He lived in the wilderness. He was on the run because the king, King Saul, was wicked and wanted him dead. And so David wrote this psalm reflecting on what he learned about God in his life. And so Psalm 139 leads us to ask this question. Have you ever wondered, who is God? Where is God? Does he even know my name? Have you ever wondered that? Does he see me? Does he care about me? Can he really help me? Uh, this, this song, and it is a song, rejoices in God's personal presence and knowledge in our lives. And I don't know about you, but it was in college that I first started getting serious about knowing God. When did that happen for you? I knew about God growing up. I didn't know him. I didn't really care about knowing him until I was a freshman in college. That's when I started to ask the question, who is God? Can I know him? Does he know me? And what does it mean to follow him or serve him or know him? Well, this is a song that reflects on, on all of that. And maybe you need to ask these questions of God today. So it says this in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Uh, the first thing you can jot down, we've got a note sheet in your bulletin, is God knows all your ways. God knows all your ways. He knows all of my ways. He knows all of your ways. He knows it all. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, verse 2 says, you discern my thoughts from afar, my path, and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. This highlights an attribute of God that can only be true of God. He is omniscient. He has all knowledge. He knows everything. We, uh, we like knowledge, and we respect those who have a lot more of it than we do. That's why there's a show called Jeopardy. Here's a picture of Jeopardy. Of course, Alex Trebek was the host. Uh, he passed away, and now there's Jeopardy drama because they, they can't find the next host. There's a lot of controversy. If you're a Jeopardy fan, you're well aware of this. They brought all these celebrities in, and then they picked some executive producer to be there, and they're like, we don't want him. And so now they don't have a host yet. There's a lot of Jeopardy drama. Who could host that show? 
When it comes to being smart, you could win a prize on Jeopardy. There are a lot of smart people alive today. Here is a collage of some of the smartest people alive. Check it out. These people have brains. These people uh, in their field have knowledge and wisdom. People seek them out. They are brilliant for a variety of reasons. There's clubs for smart people like Mensa. One of the smartest people who ever lived, they didn't have IQ tests back then, but in 1898, a man was born in America named William James Sidus. His IQ is eventually estimated to be between 250 and 300. 100 is normal, 250 to 300. Uh, Just how smart was this kid? Well, by the time he was six, he could speak multiple languages, including English, French, German, Russian, Hebrew, Turkish, and Armenian. Raise your hand if you could speak Hebrew at age six. Thank you very much. Nobody. As if that wasn't impressive enough, he invented his own language as a child. He was accepted to Harvard at the humble age of nine. However, the school wouldn't allow him to attend classes until he was 11. While he was still a student in 1910, he lectured the Harvard Mathematical Club. Let's listen to what this kid has to say. He graduated from the legendary school in 1914. He was just 16 years old. Brilliant. He was brilliant. He knew so much, but he wasn't omniscient. Only God knows everything. There was a time in history when they thought people could know everything. If you were smart enough and you studied hard enough, you could know everything. Well, it's not possible anymore in the information age. God knows everything. And this isn't just a song about the encyclopedia knowledge of God. This is a song that reflects on how God knows everything about you. Everything. He knows everything about you. He knows it all. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. These seem like trivial things. He's sitting. He's standing. He's he's not really even pondering the God knows all of my dreams when I'm unconscious. or He's just like even the basic comprehensive knowledge that God knows everything that I'm doing is spectacular to David. Jot this down. God knows everything you do. When you sit, when you stand, doesn't seem like it would register to an almighty God. He's up! And he's down! Nope. But it does. You are known by God. When I was growing up, my mom knew a lot. Hard to get away with stuff, because my mom watched all the soap operas. They trained her well. She knew a lot, but I still got away with stuff. She didn't know it all. People know a lot, but only God knows it all. Mom may have known a lot of what I did. God knew all of it. Jot this down. Everything you think, you discern my thoughts from afar. Everything you think. We have a lot of thoughts throughout the day, don't we? Everything you think, God knows it. This is, this is mind-reading technology. All right. Can you imagine the terror if I knew what you were thinking right now? Like, people knowing your thoughts is like, they make movies about this stuff, right? So there was once a movie. I can't remember if I was a Christian or not when I saw it, but it was with Mel Gibson. 
and the movie is called What Women Want, and it's like this romantic comedy. Here's a picture. Uh, and so What Women Want, so I, don't go watch it again because it might be inappropriate, but anyway, I saw it, and it was, it was a cute movie about Mel Gibson was like a pig who worked in an advertising company, uh, and, and then suddenly he like was in the tub and zapped himself with the toaster on accident, and, and then he could, he could hear what women were thinking. That's what the whole movie was about. He knew what women were thinking. And at first, he was like, well, here we go. This is a great advantage to me now, until he realized that they all hated his guts. <laughs> then he couldn't stand it anymore, so he went to a counselor, Bat Midler, and was like, take it away. I don't want this anymore. And she's like, no, this is wonderful. And it was a comedy. It was really funny that he could read minds. But the movie got real serious when he found out some of these women were in deep distress and depression and even thinking about ending it all. Then he realized he had a responsibility. Wow, the thought of knowing minds, the thought of reading minds. Uh, sometimes we wish people could understand us better. God does. He knows everything you think. He knows your mind. Now at this point, like me, you might begin to think, knowing God knows all that you do and all that you think, uh-oh, right? Uh-oh. He knows everything I ever did? Uh-huh. Uh-oh. He knows everything I've ever thought? Yeah. Uh-oh. But this isn't an uh-oh song. It could have been. It could have been like, he knows everything I ever did? Uh-oh. The whole chorus could be we're doomed. David did a lot of bad stuff, murderer. But that's not it. So this song is actually reflecting on and resting in that he knows everything that's on my mind. That can be such a big relief if you think about it. He knows, he knows it all. Every, everything that's on my mind, he knows it. He knows all of it. And there's a relief in that. Jot this down. He knows everything you speak. Before a word is on my tongue, verse 4, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now we're talking about future stuff. I'm about to say it, but I haven't quite said it yet. And he already knows it. People talk a lot. Some people talk more than others. God knows all of your words. I read in a book once that on average, most people speak about 16,000 words a day. If you transcribe those words, they'd fill a 300-page book every week. Your mouth writes a 300-page book a week. And those words are being stored up. Every word. And, oh, on Judgment Day, that's going to be terrifying. But that's not what this song is about. It's about God knowing everything that's coming out of our mouth. And it says, You hem me in behind and before, verse 5, and lay your hand upon me. Wow, we're given this picture of this omniscient God who knows everything we do, everything we think, everything we speak. He knows, he knows all of it, and yet he's caring about us. He's caring about us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Jot this down. His hand is upon you for good. His hand is upon you for good. He, everything I do, everything I think, everything I speak, and his hand is upon me for good. This is what we needed to hear. Not just that there's this divine mind, this, this spiritual cloud storage up there that's getting it all down, but 
It's highlighting his personal presence. I love that. His hand is on you. His hand is on you for good, to bless you. This is a song that rejoices in God's personal presence and knowledge of our life. Now, we have to understand that omniscience is a trait of God. One of the reasons we know Jesus was divine is because he would take these traits of God that are not communicable to you. Like, God is loving and you could be loving, but God is omniscient and you can't be omniscient, okay? It doesn't transfer. But Jesus was omniscient. He knew it all. Jesus demonstrated this. He knew the details of conversations his disciples were having when he wasn't around. What were you guys uh, talking about? And they were talking about which one of them is like the greatest. And they're all like, uh, <coughs> um, nothing. And then he calls a little child to himself and holds it up and says, hey, unless you become like this little child. In other words, they knew, he knew what they said. Peter got asked by a local official, hey, does your uh, teacher pay the temple tax? Of course he does. Jesus walks into the house, or Peter walks into the house, and Jesus is like, um, do the sons have to, and starts a conversation about that very topic. In other words, Peter knew Jesus knew what he had said, and Jesus wasn't around to hear it. They knew he knew all. Peter said it at one point, you know all things. He knew everything. He knew what his opponents were thinking. When he healed the paralytic, he said, looking around, knowing their thoughts, knowing their thoughts, then he said something. Jesus was omniscient. That's one of the reasons we know he was divine. God knows all your ways, everything you do, everything you think, everything you speak, and his hand is upon you for good. It should prompt you to sing. Number two, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. It goes on in verse 7 to say this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? So this is a hypothetical. What if I wanted to try and get away from him? It's kind of like a kid trying to race his shadow, you know, like, good luck. You know, it's just, it's not serious, like, that's it. I'm going to find a way to get away from this God. It's more like playfully reflective of God's omnipresence, which is another divine trait. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Wow, this is really amazing. God's omniscience was point one. God's omnipresence is highlighted here. God is everywhere, everywhere. He's here, he's there, and he's watching over you. Remember that song by the police? Sting, I'll be watching you. You know that song? It's about like a psycho ex-boyfriend. Every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. It's kind of a creepy song, right? That's not the kind of omnipresence that's highlighted here. It's, it's the love of a father who is everywhere you're going and he's watching over you. He's omnipresent. And that fact should be a truth about God that you rest and rejoice in He's there. Wherever you go, he's there. Uh, jot this down. Up to heaven and down to earth. Up to heaven and down to earth. Where is God? Well, the presence of God is actually a complicated category of theology. God is in heaven. 
He is in heaven where he rules, but careful, uh, heaven is a created place. He created the heavens and the earth, and uh, he created heaven and all that fills it. So the spiritual residency of God is still a created place. His uh, abode, the place where he actually dwells, is officially eternity. But he's created heaven to capture his spiritual glory and earth so that he can display his presence through us. But God is gloriously present in heaven and on earth. His presence on earth shows up through his church, his word, his spirit, and through his providential hand guiding all of history. You can see he is here, but actually no one can see God and live. He is not fully manifesting his glorious presence here on this speck we call earth because we wouldn't survive it. But he is here, and he is there, and he is everywhere. He's immense. The size of God should take your breath away. He is everywhere, up to heaven, down to earth. We know through the Hubble Space Telescope that there aren't just billions of stars. There are billions of galaxies, clusters of them out there, and God is everywhere and yet he exceeds the very size of the enormous universe. He is immense. He's everywhere. We should rest and rejoice in the thought, hey, you never leave his jurisdiction. Up to heaven, down to earth, jot this down, no matter how far you travel, no matter how far you travel, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So I'm going off far and near, far and near. You can travel a lot of places. Check it out. Here's some travel destinations you can go. Uh, there's just a bunch of them. You can go here and there and there and here. See all these different places. You've been to many places, but you're only in one place. The farthest away I've, I've ever been was 5,000 miles, right? Kiev, Ukraine. I was 5,000 miles away. Uh, and God was there. And he was here. He's everywhere. Do you see how this brings reassurance to your soul? A, a, a question I could ask if we were just having coffee is, where are you right now? And you could be like, payless? No, no, I don't mean that. I mean like, where are you? And you could tell me where you're at in life, in faith, in marriage, in parenthood, where you're at. You could tell me, here's where I am. God's there. And then I could say, well, where are you going? Oh, you could tell me all the different fearful endings to your story you're afraid of. Things could turn out this way or this way or this way. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my job. I don't know where my finance is going to be. Here's all the places I could go. God is there. God is there. He's there. Too often we write these doomsday scenarios and we act like God's not there. And then what? Uh, God's there. We should rest and rejoice in the reality of God's omnipresence throughout our lives. No matter how far you travel, jot this down, even in deep darkness, even in deep darkness, it says, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me, uh, it says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be, be night. 
Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What a great truth. A lot in this, he mentions the word Sheol in verse 8. That's the grave. So there could be some thought of what if I even die? Darkness stands for the spiritual forces that are opposed to God. So there could be just a bad period of life that darkness stands for. What if I go through a season of darkness? Uh, And it says here that even darkness is not dark to you. God can see you in the dark. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you, even in deep darkness. Bad things generally happen in the darkness, right? So I went out into our our backyard at night a couple nights ago, and uh, I walked out there, and I walked my face right into a spider web. And I felt something on my neck. I brushed it all off, and then later in that day, I had a bump on my neck. I think it was a spider bite. The spider bit me. I can't shoot webs yet. I've been trying all week long. I hope it happens. But I'm telling you, at night, things are different. I found that spider the next day. He is no longer with us. Because guess what? He stayed out in the daytime. Whoops. Light, dark, this playful difference between, you know, dark is bad, light is good, yet God is in both. He's there. Darkness and light also represent salvation. You see, we are all born into spiritual darkness. The Bible says that we can't see God. We're blind. We're in darkness. We can't find our way. Jesus is the light of the world. So when Jesus came down, he brought the light of life. And therefore, when we come to him, we can find our way to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So even in deep darkness, God is there. He wants to bring you and me from darkness into the light. But we love darkness. And therefore, we don't confess our sins because we don't want our deeds exposed. God is everywhere, even in deep darkness. And again, David talks about this in a really good way. He says in verse 10, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Jot this down. God will lead and hold you. He's everywhere, up to heaven, down to earth, no matter how far you travel, even in deep darkness. God will lead and hold you. He will actively direct you. He will reveal his will to you. He will give you wisdom. He will lead you and hold. Your hand is on me to guide me. He's he's there with you in the darkness, His hand is on you. He's close. It's personal. He's guiding you. Today, a lot of people are confused about what it means for God to be real to them, for them to know God and to know his will. One of the big phrases that's popular to say in our day is sending good vibes your way. How many of you have heard that before? Sending good vibes your way. I don't even know what that means, but I can tell you this. God doesn't do vibes. He doesn't do vibes. He does verity, which is that which accords with the truth. He will direct you in what is true and right. He will guide you with his hand upon you. That's better than vibes. This is the holy God of heaven, and he's with us to lead and direct us. Number one, God knows all your ways. See, everything you do, think, speak, 
and his hand is upon you for good. Number two, God is everywhere, up to heaven, down to earth. No matter how far you travel, even in deep darkness, God will lead and hold you. Number three, God gave you life. God gave you life. It goes on to say this in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, I'm still with you. God gave you life. This is one of the most poetic and beautiful reflections of the sanctity of life in the Bible. Every life is precious. Why? Because every life is made in God's image. From the moment of conception, God's at work. Described here as intricately weaving us together. We're, we're hand-carved for his glory. Beyond the DNA and the chemical compositions and the nutrition provided by mom, God created you. There's so much more than just impersonal, physical responses to nature. God made you. He made you to be special. Now, a lot of people today will deny that. They don't think there is a God, and they don't think we were made by God. So I'd like to actually, on this point, kind of defend it. We are created by a holy God. Now, I want you to say, no, we weren't. Oh, so you don't agree with me, huh? Well, I know there are a lot of people who disagree with me. They disagree on where we came from and why we are here. If we were created by a holy God, we were made by him, we're therefore under his authority, and we're here for his pleasure. That's the meaning. That's the why. But many people don't agree with this. Uh, in fact, David could have, based on his life, hunted down, the, living in the wild, he could have been like, that's it. There is no God, because this is all chaotic nonsense. In one of Shakespeare's books, Macbeth, after he lost his wife, here's, here's what he said. We'll put that quote up here. Mourning, lamenting. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. We can conclude that. Many do. There's no point. There's no God. Charles Schultz, Peanuts comic, actually a deep thinker, said this, I don't know the meaning of life. I don't know why we're here. I think life is full of anxieties and fears and tears. There's a lot of grief in it. It can be very grim. And I do not want to be the one who tries to tell somebody else what life is all about. To me, it's a complete mystery. So some people just don't answer the question. I don't know. Is there a God? Does he have a special plan for your life? I don't know. Who can know? Who can know? For many people, that's how they live. Ignorance. Ignorance is not neutral. It's not neutral when we have the revelation of God and we say, I don't know, ignorance is not neutral. We're turning away from what heaven has revealed to us. Joseph Campbell puts it more bluntly. Life has no meaning. Each of us has meaning and we bring it to life. It is a waste to be asking the question when you are the answer. You get what he's saying there? You are the meaning. There's nothing out there. It's simply in here. Many people live by that. 
Richard Dawkins said this, the universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's a sad song we're dancing to. No point, no right, no wrong, no nothing. Well, we believe God gave us life. It says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Our creator formed us in a glorious fashion. Jot this down. He designed you in his image. He designed you in his image. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We were made to know God and we were made to be like him. So we can have fellowship with God. We're spiritual beings. We have souls. Today, many would say there's no such thing as a soul. But we are made in God's image. And in Christ, we are remade as new creations to, to become more and more transformed in the glory and likeness of God, one degree after another. We're made to be like Him. We're made to know Him. We're made by an eternal being to love him and to become like him, and therefore life is sacred. From the very moment of conception, you have a human life made in God's image. He designed you in his image. Jot this down. He ordained your lifespan. It says, my frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In, my, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, which as yet there was none of them. He ordained your lifespan Lot, lot of discussion could come from this one. What does that? All of my days were written in his book before one of them even happened, and we could fear what this means when it comes to determinism or predestination or a fatalistic view, but none of that is what the psalm is thinking about. What the psalmist is singing about is that all of the pages of my book were in God's plan before I was even made. Therefore, my life, my entire life, every page of it is part of God's providential plan. I'm not this footnote. We can feel like, and this is what Ecclesiastes is going to talk about, life is just a chasing after the wind. What am I? Dust. I'm here for a bit. No one will remember me. There's no purpose. David sings and reflects about how my life was in his book from before I was even here. It's on his providential pages, which makes it spectacular. He ordained your, your lifespan. It has meaning. It's connected to a higher purpose. And it gives you security that your every day is transcribed into his story. Wow. He ordained your lifespan. Jot this down. Praise your creator. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. There's praise did an almighty being make you? Yep. Did he make you special? Uh-huh. Are all of your days part of his providential plan? Yeah, guess so. Where's the joy? I don't know. <laughs> Do you see how joy springs from that reality that we're made by an eternal God as part of his plan? Wow. It's not just science. It's spectacular. This should all add up to not fear, not fog, but faith and praise, not despair and detachment, 
I am God's creation, and in Christ, I am a new and glorious creation. Praise God. God gave you life. God gave you new life. God knows all your ways. God is everywhere. God gave you life. And jot this down. So therefore, turn from evil and follow God's everlasting path. There's a moral dimension now that's a little staggering. It says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Well, this song has taken a sharp turn. Now he wants people dead. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. What is going on here? Well, we have to interpret our Bibles correctly. So historically, something was going on at the time. And then we figure out what principles transcend that historic situation. David was a king of Israel. He therefore had the authority and the responsibility to protect his nation from threats, violent men. We don't don't know if this is talking about men in his country who are breaking covenant and wanting to, whatever, gain more control over the country, but they're murderous men. They're bloodthirsty men. David spent a lot of time in the caves with guys who wanted to overthrow Saul's regime. Let's just kill him and his entire army and take over. So it could have been men like that, or it could have been foreign uh, dignitaries who would come and threaten Israel. David had an authority and a responsibility to defend his nation against wicked armies who were coming to kill him. So it's in this sense that David says, I hate the enemies of God and I want them dead. Now, if you read that and you're like, so it's okay for me to hate my sister because she's getting on my nerves. Uh, You're missing the point, okay? David had to repel internally the bloodthirsty enemies of God because if he let those guys on his cabinet, he would get judged and people would die. If he let the enemies run through Israel, God's entire plan to save the whole nation, the whole world would be in jeopardy if Israel was destroyed. So what David is expressing here is very confusing because we're not supposed to hate, right? But it makes sense why David is saying this, and I hope you see clearly what this does and what this doesn't mean. So what can we pull out of this that applies to us? Well, turn from evil. He's turning from evil. He's not letting those wicked, bloodthirsty men turn his heart to be the same and follow God's everlasting path. Jot this down. It means don't partner with enemies of God. Don't partner with enemies of God. Uh, Your enemies take your name in vain. They They don't lift high the name of Jesus. They don't care about God, right? Depart from me, he says. You know, I'm not going to partner with them. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Don't partner with the enemies of God. I would say that a good application for us would be don't join the wicked in their sinful ways or love them to the disregard of God. That's how I would apply this. If I see people who are living in a profane way against God and they hate him, I'm not going to join them in that lifestyle or love them in a way that disregards God. So jot this down. Don't love those who hate God. Again, 
This is one of those paradoxes in the Bible, because God so loved the world. Okay, you following me here? God loves the world, the sinful world. So in what sense are we supposed to look upon a sinful world that hates God? Well, we're told conflicting things, right? Love those who persecute you, pray for them. And yet we're told uh, in Romans 12, 9, hate what is evil. Listen, hate what is evil. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, in a world that has lost its soul and conscience, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. How do we balance these things? I would say, don't love those who hate God, meaning you're high-fiving how they disregard a holy God. Well, I love that about you, and that about you, and that about you. Now you're disregarding God or His Word. We can't love them in that way. We can't love how their lives insult and mock and reject God. We can't cheer them on. Perhaps there's an Instagram influencer, maybe called a Christian, who thinks they know better than the Bible. And suddenly they're revising and updating all of our precious, precious truths that have been handed down for hundreds of years. And how are you responding to that? She hates God's Word. She's broken authority with the revelation from heaven. And I'm not going gaga over her. I'm not going to love how she hates God. You see that? I'm not going to love that because I hate that. I hate what she's doing to God's Word. See how it's a balancing act of applying this. And many fundamentalists have taken the hate to the extreme. They hate the world and everything about the world. That's not the point. But I think the pendulum has swung the other way. We love everything about everyone, and no one's doing anything wrong. Well, that's a mistake. Don't partner with enemies of God. Don't love those who hate God. And jot this down. Invite God to search and form your heart. It ends with a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Wow. Bring it on. Can you honestly pray that? Search me. Time, time again, God. Search me. I don't even trust myself. Search me. Know my heart. Try me. This is asking for it. And know my thoughts. This is kind of the equivalent of a teenager walking up to mom and saying, search my phone. Can you imagine? Test me and try me. See if you find anything. Wow, that's just the phone, not even the heart. Know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Bring it on. God, focus your gaze inside of me. What a prayer. God, hold me accountable. Turn me from evil. You know me. You're everywhere. You gave me life. Test me and try me. Lead me in the way that is everlasting. Wow. Have you embraced God's sovereign watch care over your soul? Have you asked him like a father to rough you up? Lord, don't, don't pitch on your hand to me. 
Anything in there that needs to go? Tear it out. Can you honestly pray that? Wow. I prepared this whole sermon this week, then on Friday I was driving home, and there's just so much thinking about God's omniscience and omnipresence, and it just staggers the mind. I was thinking, thinking, thinking. I had the radio on, and then a song came on the radio, and it, it really moved me because it was, it was as if, like, if the song David wrote was kind of written today, it would probably kind of be like this thematically. You probably know this song, but check it out. We're going to play a part of it. Oh, I fully not one or the other it's our truth and ridiculous grace to be known fully known and loved by you i fully known and loved by you i hope your heart can sing that song too let's pray father what a precious truth we are fully known what a horrifying truth. What a, what a terrifying truth. We are fully known and loved by you. Praise God. You're everywhere. No matter where we go, no matter where we end up, no matter where life takes us, you're there. Whether we feel like our plans have worked out and we are right where we wanted to be or better, or we feel like we have been adrift, floating off course for years, don't know where we're at, don't know where we're heading, don't know how the story will end, you're there. You're there. You'll always be there. You were there from the beginning, in the womb. In the womb, you were there with us. Wow. Your hand is upon us for good. And you will lead us in the way that is everlasting. Father, what security we can draw from these truths. Jesus, I know that you said no one comes to the Father except through me. So I... Know there are some here today or watching online and maybe they have never asked you, Jesus, to be Savior and Lord. Well, that's frightening because you are not there for them in the same way. To those who have not been saved, their sins are being stored up and one day they will be judged they will go away from you forever. But you want better. You want better than that. So I pray that there would be some who are repenting right now based on the terrifying knowledge that God has seen everything, that he knows everything, and that he will bring every careless word and thought into judgment. Show these people that they have offended a holy God. They are the enemies of God David spoke of. And it's time to repent, to turn around, to forsake this fallen world with all of its wickedness and to say, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. Lead me in the way that is everlasting.
through Christ. And I pray that as they say that in their own heart, that you would save them. Pull them out from the enemies of God who've defied you. Turn them onto the path of light. Thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful salvation. Help us to sing for joy at your ever-present help all this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.